Hey everybody, this is Dino and Michelle. We're back with Haw Podcast and we have a special guest. We have with us uh, Chris Date from Rethinking Hell and the The Apologetics Podcast. Chris, how you been? I've been very well. Thanks for having me. Ah, thank you for coming on. Um, Chris, we, we know that for those of you who do know, and for those who don't, we'll let you know that. Um, Chris, you're, you're mostly known um, as a proponent of uh, conditional immortality. That's through, right. And um, you're, you're an active voice, debater, um, author, um, editor of books on conditional immortality um, through the Rethinking Hell uh page and uh website uh that's right um just to uh interject for a moment i just want to point out to listeners though that as uh, a guest on your show to talk about the topic we're going to be talking about i'm not here representing rethinking hell um those are you know my my uh the, the team of us at rethinking hell have uh various views on the topic that we're going to be discussing today so i just want listeners to know i'm not here as a representative of rethinking hell just as a representative of chris date <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um and i'm sure you'll do a great job yeah well we'll see about that <laughs> <laughs> and i know that um once again your your area of expert, uh, expertise is not limited to um, you know, uh, hell and, or conditional immortality. Um, you, you focus on, uh, you know, Calvinism, predestination. That's another thing that you're known for as a supporter of Calvinism. That's right. I've uh, published a two views debate book uh, defending Calvinistic providence and predestination. I've been on the unbelievable radio program debating my friend Leighton Flowers on the topic. So, yeah, I dabble in that world as well. Right. Um, So basically what I'm saying is, you know, you know, a lot, you know, you you have a, a good grasp of what the Bible says about many different things, not just a compartmentalized view. And I'm sure I have an equally terrible uh, understanding of other topics that Scripture teaches. Um, (laughs) Hopefully this isn't one of them. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll get into the topic in a minute. Um, Just a little bit about yourself, uh, Mm. Chris. Um, You know, anything about your, you know, growing up. Um, I know that you came to faith you know, not as a child, you know, when, when you were a uh, late teen, early adult, correct? Uh, even older than that. I didn't become a believer until shortly after the birth of my wife's and my first son, which uh, would have been back in uh, 2001, I believe. So yeah, I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, my, uh, I would find I found out later in life that my parents were um, or are uh, professing Christians, uh, but we didn't um, go to church. The God and Scripture and various topics like that were not um, topics that we talked about. I dabbled um, very briefly as a child in the in the Jehovah's Witnesses because my aunt was one for about a week, and I was one for even less. <laughs> and then. Uh, um, <laughs> Several years later in elementary school, my best friend was a Mormon, so I also dabbled in that. But again, that only lasted for maybe a week, and in neither case did I take very seriously what I was being told. About the 
the the the thing that I probably most believed in um, before I became a Christian, uh, besides atheism, um, is Wicca. When I was a teenager, I was into Wicca for maybe a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. Um, but I didn't really, I don't think I really believed uh, what I was told. I just thought it would be cool to impress chicks with with spells. So I thought, hey, that might be kind of cool if I could cast magic. I never succeeded, and I didn't impress any girls. Uh, so I quickly abandoned that as well. So basically, I was an atheist up until... Um, uh, up until uh, shortly after the birth of my first child. And and it's a long story, uh, but a boring one. Basically, my dad and I every year would go on these camping trips. We enjoy caving, uh, going down in caverns. We've been to a variety of them across the country. And every, you know, in, the, in these past few years that before I became a Christian, when I would go on these trips with him, I would pepper him with uh, questions, but not questions actually interested in answers. They're more questions meant to um, make Christians look foolish. And um, and I always thought my dad did look foolish answering those questions. But then again, I thought all Christians did. And I used to make fun of Christians and things. Uh, but then one year, um, this year that my son uh, had just been born, um, Something changed, and I and I can't really explain what the 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 first half of the trip I was asking those same kinds of questions, and he wasn't answering them any better than in the past, and he didn't have compelling answers or anything. But literally overnight, um, something changed inside of me because the next day I was asking questions, genuinely interested in what he would have to say. And uh, when we returned home from that trip, the, one of the first things I did was get a Bible and start reading it, and I started listening to um, pastors on the radio and things like that. Uh, I remember very early on, I became a fan of Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man. Um, and, you know, it just, I believed. I, I, did, I wasn't convinced. I just simply believed, whereas only days earlier I hadn't. Um, and then, uh, you know, the rest is sort of history. So, yeah, th that's sort of why I tell people. I'm not only Calvinist, a uh, Calvinist theologically. I'm not. I'm not only a Calvinist because I think I see it in Scripture. I'm a Calvinist because that's the best explanation for what happened to me. It was just as if a light switch had turned on. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I I didn't become a Christian until I was in my mid twenties, mm. and I was, I was actually studying, um, dabbling in a little bit of Wicca too, mm -hmm. huh. learning how to read tarot cards and things like that. And Dino was a new Christian when we met. And my goal was to move him away from Christianity. And three weeks later, I became a Christian. Wow. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And, um, and actually, I, I had a, uh, a background. You know, I, I was raised uh, Catholic, uh, you know, New York Italian Catholic, and then New York Italian non-practicing Catholic. You know, basically, you're, you're Easter and you're Christmas Catholic. Um, and then I went to what I thought was atheism and then thought, well, that's dumb because there's something. There's something bigger than me. I don't know mm. what it is, but it's bigger than me because you know, it just didn't make sense for there not to be anything. Mm. And then, so then I was, I guess, agnostic or searching. So then I went into uh, paganism. Um, I was Ouija boards, tarot cards, uh, reading up on shamanism, stuff like that. And then I went to Florida and then my life just took a, a dive. Uh, my mom passed away. I went into a depression. Um, 
And, you know, they say when you got nowhere, you know, when, when you reach the mom, you have nowhere to look but up. Mm. And I had a friend of mine. I was, what, 23 or 24. I had started working at a Walmart uh, deli in uh, Cape Coral, Florida. And the only person I had for a friend was an 18-year-old high school senior. So here mm. I was, 24. My only friend is an 18-year-old high school kid. So, of course, that made me feel like a loser. <laughs> you know, it's like, I can't even get friends my own age over here. But, you know, one day he's like, hey, man, what are you doing tonight? And it was a Wednesday. I said, nothing. You know, do you want to come to church with me? And I just looked at him like, ah, I don't think so. I said, I, you know, I've done the whole religion thing. He goes, well, how about trying the whole God thing? And I'm like, that's what I said. He goes, no, you didn't. Won't you come with me? So I said, all right, I, basically because I had nothing else to do. And then I went, and the pastor was preaching, and he was talking about, you know, the church of Laodicea, you know, the, the quote-unquote vomit scripture. Mm. And We've all heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mean I'm warm in a water, and you're going to spit me out of my mouth? You know, that whole thing. But it just sounded a lot different than nice poetry that I used to think of it as hmm. and went up to go shake the pastor's hand and say thank you and all of a sudden I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior so wow. it was just a thing you know so yeah God works like that sometimes yep. <clears throat> make it even more interesting Chris <clears throat> the 18 year old that he was friends with I used to babysit him whoa that's weird <laughs> 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 so, yeah, so it's kind of odd. And, and I met him while he was still working. I met him actually at the deli, is where I hmm. met him now, while he was working at the deli with this kid. Right. <laughs> and that was before you knew I knew him. Right. Right. Because I said, oh, let me introduce you to my friend Tom. And lo and behold, they're like, hey, I know you. Because <laughs> yeah, he used to live like two doors down from me, and that's when I had babysat him. <laughs> but, but, um, and Chris, uh, we we became aware of you through rethinking hell, and I think that might be why we kind of associate you. Right. Well, yeah, it with was that through conditional immortality. Um, it was what about four years ago, three years ago? Um, no, I don't think that. Like two years ago. And uh, we had seen you on uh, One Minute Apologist. Yeah. And you were laying out a case for conditional immortality and. Michelle had been challenged about her stance on hell from a, a Facebook debate with an atheist mm -hmm. who said, are you sure your Bible talks about if you don't believe in Jesus, you're burning for hell forever? And of course, you know, the smoke goes up forever and the worm doesn't die and all the other things that we thought meant, you know, everlasting Punishment, you know, torment. It, you know, torment, ongoing, um, seem to not mean that. <laughs> so we checked out Rethinking Hell, and you know, I saw a bunch of your debates. Um, Love your debate style. Yeah. I, what, I, <laughs> what style is that? Where you actually present a case, where you know, um, a lot of a lot of the ones that we watch. I mean, I. You'll have the slides and everything 
that explain everything really well. Just the way you lay out your presentation. Right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, it, that. It makes it very right. understandable. Yeah. Um, even to, you know, to a lay person, somebody who doesn't know a lot of what that subject may be, mm-hmm. you present it in a way that they can understand it. Yeah. That really touches me. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. So, but also, you know, we, we, you know, we, we've been, you know, interacting on Facebook and everything. And uh, we know that you had hosted uh, game parties through, <laughs> uh, through Xbox and stuff. Yeah, uh, my wife and I, uh, this is, gosh, I want to say maybe a year now ago, approximately, we, we discovered at a friend's house of ours um, these games made by a company called Jackbox TV. And we had actually, years earlier, um, when you would still get uh, computer games on CD-ROM, um, we had gotten into a game called You Don't Know Jack, and we loved it, absolutely loved it. And uh, and I remember when the Xbox 360 made that game available, we bought that and enjoyed it for a little bit. Well, fast forward to, uh, uh, like I said, about a year ago or so, and we discovered Jackbox TV, and they've got these um, trivia games. And what's really cool about them, not just trivia games, but um, that's a major theme. And what's really cool about them is um, they're, they're party games that up to eight or sometimes even more people can play all together where the, the person you know, the people with the Xbox uh, Xbox plays the game up on the screen, but everybody controls their answers and things through their phones. They log into a website and, and log it in. And what we discovered, we didn't have, we don't have a lot of people that live near us that can come over very frequently, but we wanted to play with people very often. And so we figured out that with the Xbox One, you can um, broadcast what you're uh, playing on your Xbox using Twitch, I think is what it's called. And since people log into a website on their phones to do their controls. It kind of made perfect sense. Okay, well, let's just stream our game and then invite people to log in on their phones and play with us. And uh, apparently you guys joined us one time and yeah. I apologize for having forgotten that, but yeah, that was, um, it was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, um, the, uh, the excitement about that game seems to have died down a bit. We haven't played for a while, and the, and that's because the past few times we tried to get a party going, hardly anybody, if anybody at all, showed up. But next time we do one, we'll we'll make sure to let you guys know in advance so you can join us. Yeah, awesome, absolutely. Great. Oh yeah, we miss the days of going out and actually interacting with other adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before we had the uh, three kids in uh, in Florida, and then we had moved to Tennessee. Um, we used to join, uh, we used to play poker a lot. Mm. Uh, we would go out to the area bars and they would have poker leagues that were not cash. You played for points mm. and you play a, a season. And at the end of the season, the, the main point holders would compete in a tournament and you would win prizes and, and restaurant tabs and, uh, one year it was a entry into the World Series of Poker and stuff like that. And like I said, there was no money. You know, we weren't gambling. Um, it was just a fun thing to do. You know, go out and, and literally we were we would do it like six nights a week. <laughs> yeah, kids and you know my job was you know pretty cool. You know, so it wasn't something where I woke up. You know, and and we didn't drink. Uh, so it wasn't like we were waking up hungover every night. Um, but we found it, found it was a good place to actually witness. Yeah. yeah. 
like hang out and just you know because people would be like you know because we would have poker chips you know with like a cross on it or what and people say, would say like, oh, all in for jesus you know whatever and people are like what what is that <laughs> like you're a christian <laughs> and you're playing poker in a bar <laughs> yeah and, I, and i'm all in i just took you <laughs> god bless <laughs> but um but yeah so i mean we've always been you know into the fun in the games and the mm-hmm. you know well so. when we first got saved we were um youth leaders yeah mm. um, at, um dino had been saved just a few weeks before he and i met and then, like I said, I was trying to get him away from Christianity, but instead God pulled me to him. And about three weeks after that, the youth pastor said, hey, we're just going to get together and hang out. This was like on a Saturday. Yeah. And Dino and, I, Dino and I were like, hey, cool. Okay, we'll come hang out. And we got there and the chairs were set up in a circle and he handed everybody that showed up a um, background okay. check. <laughs> and I looked at each other and we're like, we need to fill out a background check to be his friends what mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't get this and he sat us down he goes okay everybody here's my youth leaders <laughs> and dino and i are like huh what <laughs> i mean sort of I voluntold just, yeah, yeah. I, I just became a christian how can i yeah be a youth leader i don't and but god just kind of threw us in there and we yeah. were youth leaders for quite a few years before the kids came, and then it was kind of we concentrated a little bit more on our family and yeah, and raising our family. But mm-hmm. but yeah, so um, and Chris, like you know that you know we are a entertainment podcast. Um, we cover movies, video games, uh, TV shows, comic books, what have you. Um, board games too. Board games. When too. we do, we did unboxing. Dino has a um, mixtape massacre. massacre, which is a horror-based board game. Yeah, <laughs> slasher board game, <laughs> which is kind of cool. We we try and play that one often because it cost us a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's a nice quality game. Um, like I said, uh, as far as uh. TV shows or movies. Um, what do you What are you interested in? Um, sci-fi, anything, any genre in particular that you? Uh, there's. I don't think there's really any particular genre that I'm a huge fan of. I suppose that I. Um, if there were one genre genre above all others, it's it probably is horror, um, but not. I don't like sort of. Uh, cult classic type horror or cheesy fun horror. I like, you know, realistic, really good special effects type horror. Um, but that having been said, uh, I, I enjoy a variety of genres. And so, for example, my wife and I were huge fans of Lost when it was still on, at least up through the last half season, maybe. Um, we're big we're big fans of Stranger Things. We love Survivor, so we like a little bit of uh, so-called reality TV as well. Um, I'm I really love The Walking Dead. My wife did too for a while. I think that she might be sort of losing interest, but I'm a big fan of The Walking Dead still. We really loved Game of Thrones up until that last episode. <laughs> um, 
We like Outlander. Um, we also like some British shows. Um, we watch uh, Shetland and Sherlock. We like comedy uh, game shows. They have a lot of really good ones in in uh, Britain. So we like to watch Eight Out of Ten Cats Does Countdown and Would I Lie to You. And then on YouTube, we've been really getting into a couple of shows as well. Um, uh, in particular, a show called The Hot Ones, uh, in which the host has you know big stars to come on and eat hot, uh, increasingly hot, hot sauces, um, <laughs> which is really fun. So yeah, it's a variety of things. And when it comes to movies, again, it's a big variety. I really loved uh, It and the forthcoming It Two. I'm really excited about. Wow. I really enjoyed the John Wick trilogy, um, the Avengers movies, just pretty much all of them. Um, I really enjoyed the Unbreakable trilogy, the one that started with Unbreakable and then had Split in Glass, um, the Matrix trilogy, most of all, especially the first movie, Mission Impossible series lord of the rings trilogy hobbit trilogy it really is all, all over the board um uh yeah okay now i know that you uh you said you're not into the cheesy low budget you know exploitation type of <laughs> films um there was one that i saw <laughs> a week ago that i uh received the screen reports i think it's making the festival rounds right now and it is called Velocipaster. <laughs> okay. And basically what it is, it's a, a priest who sees his mom and dad uh, killed in a explosion, a car explosion. So to get over his grief, he takes a sabbatical to China. Which oddly looks like a northeast... Uh, United States forest. Yeah, it mm. kind of looks like it was shot on the side of the freeway. <laughs> you know, in the it probably forest. was. It probably was, and um, somehow he he comes across this raptor claw, and it stabs him, and it's a cursed raptor claw. So now he kind of becomes a were raptor. <laughs> um. And, and- what did you like the Hulk when he gets angry? He can yeah. ra- he can raptor out, I guess, instead yeah. of Hulk out. And he, it, you he, know, it starts off like you know with his hands, and then he can go full raptor. And then he's fighting ninjas, which I believe are Japanese, anyhow. But somehow <laughs> in China, they they no they're Chinese ninja, but Catholic priests. Because yes. right? it was like this Catholic order of Chinese ninja Ninjas. priests. Yes. <laughs> well, that sounds rational. That sounds uh, realistic. Yeah. <laughs> and um, almost as realistic as the raptor hand. <laughs> the, the raptor face. And, and basically, he is protecting this uh, prostitute that he met. And has fallen in love with. And has fallen in love with. Um, so, yeah. But the film is very, like, grindhouse, you know, trying to be 80, you know, 70s grindhouse looking. They actually took the film and baked it at, uh, I think, 200 degrees uh, in an oven for, like, 20 minutes in order to get, like, that sepia-esque, you know, Hmm. jacked up grindhouse look. And, I mean, it... It is what they know what they're trying to be. You know, it's it's not like they're trying to make this great movie and then 
you know, oh, it's horrible. No, they know what they're doing, mm. you know. And it, it kind of reminds me of Kung Pao in a way, if you've ever seen Kung Pao. I haven't. Okay, Kung Pao is a film by Steve Odekirk. He did uh, Jimmy Neutron. Uh, he wrote uh, Ace Ventura. Um, bunch of other... He's a really funny guy. Yeah, he is. He's funny. Um, he can carry an entire movie just by yeah, himself. As a matter of fact, he has. There's a movie, and you can find it on YouTube, called High Strung. And the whole movie is him in his apartment complaining about life <laughs> and it's you know break the whole movie breaks the fourth wall it's all kind of monologue and um he was a writer from living color so he's good friends with jim carrey um but kung pao i digress i apologize but kung pao is he took 70s like kung fu films like old shaw brothers movies and took them, re-edited them, superimposed himself in the film as the main character, and overdubbed the dialogue with ridiculousness. <laughs> and it, it's funny. It's, it's... Can I tell the fir- one of the first scenes? Okay, with the baby? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I-, I won't tell you what happens at first, but there's a baby, and the baby is rolling down the down a hill. Okay? When and you say, it, when you say I, it's... Do you mean, it, like, in a stroller? No, 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 it's a baby who launches itself out a window and is crawling. And, I mean, it's obviously a doll, you know, right. very purposefully a doll. And it just rolls down the hill. Right. right. And it's blanket and it's rolling down the hill. And it gets to a point in the hill where there's like a road carved out. And there's a Chinese woman walking down the road. And as the baby gets to that part, she picks the baby up. She goes... Oh, so cute. And lays the baby on the ground and goes, bye-bye, and kicks it so it keeps oh going gosh. down the rest of the hill. <laughs> You're right. And the baby's going, ah. <laughs> that is bizarre. Oh, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's a good fun. one. It's a good one. <laughs> oh, there's kicking cows, dancing cows. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's a fun show. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. So it, it's that type of ridiculousness. Only doesn't play itself off as well. Mm. I appreciate it for what it is. I think Michelle is <laughs> completely opposite of my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Let's I, just say I think it, I'm being nice. Okay. Well, <laughs> Dino, it, it doesn't matter how good or bad a movie is. If Dino, if there is a commentary, Dino will watch the movie again to listen to the commentary. Hmm. If there's two commentaries, he'll watch it two more times to listen to both commentaries. If they by chance wanted to do ten commentaries, Dino would watch it ten times to hmm. listen to all ten commentaries. Me, I would, on that one, I would not sit through the commentary. Yeah, I'm going to bed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, well, there's I'm, no accounting for taste. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm guilty, and I admit it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought it was kind of, you know, odd about the whole pastor and dinosaur thing, and it just got me thinking about whenever 
I, I know that there's a was it a not a divide, but there is this misconception that faith and religion faith, are, faith and religion. I mean, faith. I'm sorry, religion, faith and science are mutually exclusive. Hmm. You know, I, I often hear it. You know, w w w there is a show on uh, Netflix, uh, Glass uh, Blown uh, Away. Yeah, glass, uh, yeah, Blown Away. Right, the Glass Blowing Show. And one of the themes was... Duality. Duality. And they, they were working as teams, and they said, well, we're going to do faith and science because these are at odds with each other. And I sat there and it bothered me. Yeah. Because I don't necessarily see it. I mean, there are many people of science who are great people of faith. Well, indeed, it was their it was their faith that prompted them to be scientists. The whole scientific endeavor um, was made possible and arose uh, was made possible by and arose from the conviction that the universe is uh, intelligible, that it's ordered, and that one can make sense of it. Um, which they only believed because they believed in a transcendent, <coughs> excuse me, monotheistic creator God. Right. Okay. So. I mean, and there are many, you know, uh, scientists, like famous scientists that were people of faith. Uh, was Newton a man of faith? Yeah, although, um, if I'm not mistaken, he held some questionable views, uh, but I believe that, yes, he was a, he was a, a professing Christian. Okay. Um, so... Let's see, I... The, the one thing that's popping in, in, into my head, though, that I'm not sure if I'm bringing it up at, at the right time, I, I think what sometimes might propel the idea that these two things are set, cannot be held together and are separate, sometimes I think does come from the Christian side, though. As homeschoolers, that, yeah. that was one thing I noticed. As homeschoolers, um, when you look at the science books... For home, in homeschooling, you've got to be really uh, careful, especially if you're, because I, when we first started homeschooling, I created our own curriculum mm. and I would pull, you know, from different, you know, different places. I might get our math from here or in you know, our English from here and, you know, and kind of piece it together. And Goodwill was actually a great place for that because you can get old used um, state textbooks at Goodwill and, and different places like that. But recently we've moved to doing like box curriculums that are made by um, a company and it has, the one company has all the subjects. <laughs> and you, I, you've got to be very careful when you look at the science books that come with it. Right. Because they try, I, I notice it looks like they're trying to divide the science and religion. Mm hmm even within those Christian science textbooks. Like right. in what way? Um, oh boy, I don't know if I was ready. <laughs> well, no, I, the, the reason I... 
the reason I ask is just because, um, you, and you know, we still haven't quite gotten to um, the topic that we're going to be discussing today, and I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. But um, for whatever it's worth, there is a difference between Christian science books presenting a view of a particular scientific topic that we might happen to disagree with. There's a difference between that and presenting uh, science as if it is at odds with Christianity. I mean, you know, right? Those, those are two different approaches that a Christian yeah. science book might take. Right. And, and I, I guess I just want to say we, and I'm not assuming this is what you were doing. Um, but I just wanted to, I just want to encourage ourselves to, um, to make sure that if a, if a Christian science, uh, book or ministry or whatever presents a view of a scientific topic that we think is contrary to what scripture teaches, that doesn't necessarily mean, that they think science and, and the Bible are at odds with one another or anything like that. Right. No, and, the, and I get that. And that's why I say you, they, there are a lot of them that um, don't place them at odds, but that's why you kind of have to look through the, you got to be careful and look through the book mm -hmm. because there are some of them that will kind of say that scientists are, cannot be Christian and are, you know, oh. and, and I've just, you know, I've noticed that. And I actually had somebody approach me one time that uh, a couple of months ago, he was raised uh, Christian. He no longer is. He's, he's now an atheist. Um, and his dad is still a worship pastor. Mm -hmm. And um, he was raised um, with a particular homeschool um, curriculum. I won't go into names, but it's actually the one that we're using for our son right now. Yeah. And basically he said the, he, I think he watched the videos, which we don't do. Right. We just kind of use the books. So I can kind of guide it a little bit more and right. put a little bit more of what we believe in there. Still use what they give us, but you know, right. kind of deviate a little bit, but the videos he said very much were trying to pit, science and religion against each other oh, yeah that's that's unfortunate and yeah and unfortunately because he didn't he didn't feel they could be separate he felt he had to choose between science and religion and as i said now he's an atheist right mm. now now let me ask you michelle those books because i'm going to be honest i haven't looked into the science book of it mm-hmm um, you know, I, I do the the Bible study with the kids and the math with the kids and mm -hmm. language arts and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Well, see, that uh, was the one thing we have to watch with the math, too, a lot of these Christian ones. I don't want, there, there was one book that all the word problems use, like, parables in order to make right. the word problems. And it's like, okay, I want to be able to teach, I think <clears throat> you can teach your kid math without having to inject <laughs> Problem. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, you go know, with your question. Now, did they, did they mention dinosaurs or anything in that you're aware of? Well, with with uh, Killian's this year, he's in the eighth grade. Mm -hmm. So, um, and his particular science right now is, is he's learning. Um, uh, oh, come on. With, with like rocks and things geology? like that. Um, not geology. Uh, I mean, that's a part of it. Um, earth science? Earth science. Okay. He, he's in the earth sciences right now, and it really hasn't, <laughs> it, it 
doesn't really touch on, on okay. what you're Go asking. Ahead. And the girls are still young enough that they're learning more of and they're and they the girls actually use a different uh, curriculum than company than my son uses. But theirs is really more talking about how everybody's an individual. You know, mm-hmm. we all have different hair colors and eye colors. And, okay. You know, we're talking about the five senses. Okay. So we, you know, it's not to where it would be there. So I don't know because okay. we, uh, we haven't gotten when Killian would have been the age where they might have gone through that is when I was making <coughs> our own curriculum. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because the reason I ask is, like I said, um, with the film, it kind of just sparked in me this whole thing of, you know, faith and, like, say, dinosaurs, you know, where, you know, because, of course, the two main beliefs for the origin, and I might might be uh, simplifying this, but, you know, two main beliefs for the origin of everything is, you know, intelligent design, creation, or, you know, Big Bang evolution. Well, just to be fair, I think that yeah. a lot of advocates of intelligent design would affirm some sort of uh, evolution, um, but they would uh, they would say that the origin of a species and perhaps their development over time wouldn't have been possible apart from an intelligent designer. So I I would say the intelligent design community is probably mixed. Some of them believing in creation, others believing in some sort of like theological or theistic evolution, something like that. Would that also account, Chris, would that account for like the difference between macro evolution and micro evolution? Um, well, no. So first of all, I'm not a fan of, um, those of that distinction, um, which is fine. I I, I just, it's, it's, I'm just stubborn. Um, the the reason I say that is because I I think that when you, um, call them micro, micro evolution and macro evolution, you give, um, evolutionists the impression that you think that, or or that you agree that there's, it's just a a difference in degree of change, right? Macro or micro evolution is a little change. Macro is a lot. If the, if we, if we can say the micro is possible, then, um, why can't we say that the macro is possible too, given enough time? I, I, I just think we should use the word evolution to describe common descent. Um, you know, the, the, the claim that all uh, life has descended from a single com- a single ancestor, and we should use something else like adaptation or something to describe the kinds of um, small changes that any um, kind of creature undergoes over time. You know, for example, the uh, finches that um, uh, that Darwin observed on the Galapagos Islands, uh, they're sort of upheld as if they're uh, a um, icon of evolution. In fact, it's one of the icons of evolution that was discussed in the book by that name. Um, but but all Darwin saw them do, and all they've ever, ever been observed to do, is to go through sort of cyclical variations in the sizes and shapes of their beaks. They never actually, um, uh, well, and and those and those changes to the sizes and shapes of their beaks are are adaptive. They're they're they make it possible to adapt to um, times of the year when they're when, when food is more scarce, and they and the birds have to be able to crack open shells that are uh, that ordinarily they wouldn't have to crack open in order to get to food. 
Um, that is an example of adaptation, what you guys just called microevolution. But it's it doesn't in any way, shape, or form um, support the notion that evolution is possible. The idea that uh, a bird could that a dinosaur, for example, could have could evolve into a bird. Um, obviously, nobody believes a dinosaur evolved into a bird. But you get my point. Right. So. But but anyway, all, all that me splitting hairs and, and picking at nits aside, um, I would say that no, even even uh, many advocates of intelligent design would be believers in so-called macroevolution, uh, common descent, or at the very least, common descent from an original set of um, of uh, phylum, uh, phyla, right? So, for example, in the, the Cambrian explosion, where all of a sudden, in some of the deepest layers of the geologic column, all of a sudden you have something like 28 or, or something like that, um, distinct uh, body plans represented, you know, some 28 different phyla all suddenly appear in the geo- geological record, all all um, beside one another, you know, they're not having um, uh, changed over time from still simpler organisms. I, I suspect that there are advocates of intelligent design who would say that some degree of common descent is in fact possible from that point, but they would say that the only possible way to explain the origin of those original phyla, those original body plans, was to have an intelligent designer. Um, now, there probably there are surely advocates of intelligent design who would be creationists and who would affirm only the possibility of adaptation and not evolution. I would count myself among them. Um, but uh, it's not, but, but no, it, it's not only that microevolution that is represented by intelligent design advocates. There are plenty of theistic evolutionists among them as well. Okay. Okay. Now that brings me to a point. Um, go, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Literally, with, <laughs> with Genesis um, in the Bible, um, you you believe in you are a young Earth creationist, correct? That's right. Okay, so six days to create, and then God rested on the seventh. That's right. Okay, but you do believe that dinosaurs roam the Earth. Uh, not only do I believe they roamed the Earth, I think that they coexisted with humankind. Right. Okay. So humans and dinosaurs were contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Now, aside from, because often I've, I've said that I've asked the question, and I'm not saying I don't believe it. I just want to know how it works. Um, you know, based on what, um, and when I do ask, I, I'm often told, well, it's found in Job, and that is the answer I get, and it seems to be the end of the conversation. Hmm. Would you do me a favor and, and expound on that, please? I'm... Expound on, on Job? Uh, what exactly is the question? I don't think you necessarily asked the question. Okay, where is where are dino, where do you feel that dinosaurs are biblically supported scripturally? Yeah. Well, well, it's biblically supported anywhere, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that question. <laughs> the, that's that's a good question. Um, before I answer that, I do just want to point out um, for the listener's sake and and for our own sake that. Um, 
even if I didn't think that dinosaurs were mentioned anywhere in scripture, that would not I would not perceive that to be any sort of challenge to young earth creationism or to the idea that humans and dinosaurs coexisted because as we may talk about a little bit later in the conversation I don't think that dinosaurs are still roaming the earth in abundance now nor do I think that they did so in abundance uh, throughout most of the time that scripture was written and so it very so it very well may be that um, biblical authors, you know, very rarely, if ever, encountered dinosaurs, and so would have felt no need to mention them in Scripture. And secondly, um, there are all sorts of amazing creatures that biblical authors may have encountered that aren't mentioned in Scripture. Um, you know, take a take giraffes, for example, uh, or I don't know. I'm sure there are all sorts of kinds of creatures that we think are amazing and astounding, but for whatever reason, biblical authors didn't include that to mention them, didn't think to mention them. And so if they coexisted with dinosaurs and if they encountered them, one wouldn't still, one wouldn't necessarily expect them to be mentioned in scripture. So with that disclaimer out of the way, I, I want to offer two answers to your question, um, but I don't want to just ramble on for hours. And so, so feel free to stop uh, and, and discuss at points along the way. I do think I do think Job is one of them, and, and we'll get there. But I think that there before we get to Job, I think there are other important um, facts to consider as well. So, for example, um, the, the Hebrew word tanim is typically translated sea creature or serpent or dragon. And it does indeed seem to refer simply to snakes in texts like Exodus 7, 8 to 13. Uh, in that text, Moses, if you guys will recall the story, most of us are familiar with it. Moses, uh, his staff becomes a serpent. Um, and so too do the uh, staves of the um, Egyptian magicians upon Pharaoh's command. But Moses' staff, uh, the, the serpent that his staff bec- uh, turns into consumes the, the others that the magician staffs come into. So we do see the word being used just to describe simple snakes. But it's also what Leviathan is called in Isaiah 27.1, and Leviathan is described in Job 41 as a fearsome, fearless, powerful, amphibious creature that isn't scared away by human weapons and leaves a wake behind as it swims. This is not, clearly not, just a simple uh, snake. And so I think it's conceivable uh, that in some cases where we read of Tanim in scripture, we're seeing some sort of large aquatic or amphibious creature. And there are, you know, we, we sometimes use the word dinosaur to describe all sorts of very large lizard-like creatures. But I think the word, I think the word strictly speaking only applies to land uh, dinosaurs. I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think that like plesiosaurs, for example, uh, properly are described as dinosaurs. But either way, this could be some sort of plesiosaur or some other sort of amphibious creature. Um, I think that's I think that's entirely plausible. Um, do you want to talk about that at all before I move on to the next example? Oh, sure. Uh, or I can just move on. I just I, I don't want it to just be be <laughs> me talking forever. I like listening, so yeah, okay. proceed. <laughs> all right. So another example is in uh, is in the Greek word dracon, um, which you might recognize as dragon, and that is indeed how it is typically translated. It appears it's used to describe a dragon, the devil, um, all throughout the Book of Revelation, but it's also often used in the Septuagint, the um, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was produced in the uh, couple of centuries leading up to the time of Christ. And there in the Septuagint, it seems to refer again to powerful amphibious creatures. 
creatures, possibly the kind called Leviathan in Job 41. Uh, interestingly, for example, in, there's a book of the Apocrypha called Bell and the Dragon. It's sort of like a uh, an additional chapter um, to the book of Daniel that doesn't appear in our Protestant Bibles. And Bell and the Dragon tells a story in which the Babylonians have one of these creatures, one of these dracone creatures, um, and they revere it because it's so mighty that it's, it's, it's as if it's a god. And in the story, Daniel sets out to prove it isn't a god, and he tells the king of Babylon that he'll cr- kill the creature without sword or club. And he does indeed manage to do so by feeding it food mixed with boiling tar. Now, there's no um, snake, you know, that, uh, that that the Babylonians are going to practically worship as a god, um, but it very well could be a, a, a powerful amphibious creature like that uh, uh, Tanim that I described in the Hebrew Old Testament. And and the story of the Dracon doesn't end there. Um, there's a historian, an ancient Greek historian named Herodotus, who lived about 450 to 500 years before Christ. And in in his book, Histories, he writes the following... There's a place in Arabia, not far from the town of Budo, where I went to learn about the winged serpents. When I arrived there, I saw innumerable bones and backbones of serpents, many heaps of backbones, great and small and even smaller. The serpents are like water snakes. Their wings are not feathered, but very like the wings of a bat. So here you've got some sort of serpent that is um, known by Herodotus and others as flying, as having wings, but those wings aren't feathered like a bird's, they're feathered like a bat. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, As I said, this was about 450 to 500 years before Christ, but a few decades after Christ, um, another historian, this one not Greek but Jewish, named Josephus, he evidently writes of the same creature, um, describing it existing in the time of Moses. He says, when the ground was difficult to be passed over because of the multitude of serpents, such as are worse than others in power and mischief, and also fly in the air, but fly from ibis birds, those are Egyptian birds that evidently um, preyed upon these winged snakes, They, they, these winged snakes fly from ibis birds when they come near them, and as they fly, they are caught and devoured by them. So separated by some 550 to 600 years, you have a Greek historian prior to Christ and a Jewish historian after him, both were referring to winged uh, serpent-like creatures whose wings aren't feathered like a bird's, but like, but a rather uh, skin, you know, uh, like the wings of a, of a bat. Now, this is not a creature I'm familiar with, uh, but the closest thing I can think of is something like a pterosaur, um, which also, by the way, I don't think properly qualifies as a dinosaur, but, you know, pterodactyl, that kind of thing. They have wings like bats and they're uh, flying lizards. So um, I, at least as far as I understand, so I think it's quite plausible that these creatures, too, um, were dinosaur creatures, not dinosaurs, but, you know, within that same kind of thing we think of as dinosaurs, coexisting with humans, so much so that a Greek historian could describe them um, in, you know, hundreds of years before Christ, and a Jewish one could could shortly after Christ. Um, so that that's another example where I think I see, uh, again, this ties back to what I was talking about, the word dracon in, in the Septuagint, which I think is an indication that there are, in fact, uh, amazing dinosaur-like serpents described in uh, described in scripture, and we haven't even gotten to Job yet. So, right, right. Now, now, do you think that these creatures at one point were plentiful, or were they um, scarce? Scarce even from the beginning. 
Yeah, I mean, I see no reason to think that they were scarce from the beginning. Um, you know, if we're talking about land dinosaurs, we're talking about um, them being created on the same day as those. And if we're talking about amphibious dinosaur-like creatures, you know, maybe they were created on, on the day when sea creatures were created. And they would have surely been abundant, um, just as, uh, you know, all animal life appears to, to be, at least initially. Um, but... If the f- flood narrative of scripture is to be taken seriously, taken literally, as, as I take it, um, then there would have been a drastic reduction in at least the um, number of land uh, dinosaurs, if not you know, the, the, the flood would have been accompanied by all sorts of um, tumult as well, all sorts of uh, violence in, in the water, and, and very likely many of the land uh, sea dinosaurs would have died off as well. And, you know, depending on where flying dinosaurs are during this time, when, when the whole earth is covered by water, I don't know how they would survive either. So I think it's... Um, I would say that probably there was a drastic reduction in the number of dinosaurs and dinosaur-like creatures um, at the time of the flood when Noah only took pairs of each dinosaur kind on the ark with him. Um, But then after the flood, they would have likely begun to flourish again. But it's very plausible to me that they would never have um, returned to the numbers they were prior to the flood. And more importantly, over the um, you know, a couple thousand years thereafter, um, I would imagine that uh, um, human beings would have hunted them to extinction or, or near extinction, at least, um, uh, either for food or for sport or for trophies or what have you. I mean, look, that's what happens with elephants and rhinos and all sorts of creatures today. Um, they're hunted for sport and for trophies and for food or whatever. Heck, even whales are um, and, and other large sea creatures are hunted not only for food, but for some of those other reasons as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that they're... What's that? So they're hunted to make makeup. Right, yeah. Also, or or because it's thought that certain parts of whale bodies and things are, or dolphin bodies are, um, uh, useful for male virility. Right. I mean, there's there's all sorts of stupid things that we humans do to um, animals, and yeah, I would say that uh, not long, probably not terribly long after the flood, dinosaurs and dinosaur-like creatures probably did become fairly scarce um, as a result of that kind of hunting, and now they may very well be entirely. Um, entirely extinct, but I will say I've read interesting accounts of uh, uh, missionaries who've gone into the jungles of Africa and talked to um, uh, native peoples there who describe creature, uh, describe a dinosaur-like creature, and when shown a drawing of one, um, like a brachiosaur-type creature, they they freak out and they and they recognize it. That suggest to me the possibility that there may still be a few around, possibly. Um, and of course, you've got um, long-standing um, uh, uh, legends of creatures like um, Loch Ness Monster, uh, which uh, has, uh, I think is very interesting and, and could very plausibly be some sort of a plesiosaur. So I think that there may still be a few around, uh, but I won't... Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they're not. Uh, so yeah, I just I think they were probably abundant at first, probably started to flourish again a little bit after the flood, but have been hunted to the brink of extinction, if not outright extinction. Okay. okay. All right. Now, okay, since we did mention it, uh, would you mind uh, covering Job? Sure. So um, 
So beginning at the end of chapter 38 of Job, God begins asking Job a series of questions about animals that he's created and with which Job is familiar. Uh, in fact, Job's familiarity with the animals seems to be foundational to the very thing that God is trying to um, teach Job. Because what God is trying to teach Job is that uh, Job is, uh, relative to God, small, unintelligent, and powerless. God is the one who's created these animals and provides for them and uh, you know so on and so forth. And during the course of these questions, over the next couple of chapters, God lists lions, ravens, mountain goats, donkeys, oxen, ostriches, horses, hawks, and eagles, all real, uh, ordinary creatures. And then in chapter 40, God tells Job about uh, uh, tells Job to behold a creature called behemoth. Uh, in Hebrew, it's behemoth, which is just the plural word for behemoth, meaning beast. And, uh, you know, sometimes when the plural of a word like this is used in the Old Testament, it's, it's sort of what's called a uh, plural of majesty, or, or not plural of majesty, uh, uh, like, like the word Elohim, which is a plural of God, is, is believed to mean something like God of gods. Like it's it's the, the biggest one imaginable, the, the most supreme among them. And so the behemoth appears to be um, like beast of beasts. And God says that he made uh, this beast of beasts just as he had made Job. And well, this like the uh, royal we of animal. <laughs> yeah, uh, something well, like that. Um well. But anyway, so Job, in, in Job chapter 40, this creature, Behemoth, is described as very powerful. He's called the first or the chief of the works of God. He's unable to be moved by a raging river. And, and perhaps most importantly for our discussion right now, um, he is said to make his tail stiff like a cedar, or he bends his tail like a cedar, or its tail sways like a cedar, depending upon which translation you're reading. Now, as far as I can tell, there are three generally accepted proposals for what this creature is, and I'm going to discuss them uh, in the order that I think, uh, in what I think is the order from least to most likely to be the the, uh, the the kind of creature that is actually described there. First, and I think least likely, some translations include a footnote that says behemoth is a hippopotamus or an elephant. Uh, I've seen a commentary suggest that it may be a buffalo. Um, and, and there's... Uh, there's, it would make sense that an ordinary kind of animal like that would follow that list that I just described. And so at least on the surface, it has uh, uh, some plausibility. But I think that the notion that it's a creature like this is difficult to square with the beast's tail being compared to a cedar tree, especially given how enormous cedars were um, in, uh, in, in, in the period in the place of the world where this would have been written uh, and especially if it if the word make if the if the word translated uh, bends or sways in some translations is better translated something like make stiff because the tail of a hippopotamus elephant and uh, buffalo is not um, stiff right. um, now making this possible explanation more plausible is that it could be that this makes his tail stiff like a cedar is a euphemism um, for the creature's male reproductive organ becoming erect. And there is, in fact, some precedent for this in the uh, surrounding Ugaritic literature in the ancient Near East, um, in which case it makes this kind of creature at least a little bit more plausible um, to be the, what's being described here. Um, but still, it doesn't seem to me as, as, as stiff as the male organ of a hippo, elephant, or buffalo can get. Um, it doesn't seem to be anywhere near stiff enough and certainly nowhere near large enough to be compared to a cedar. So I think that's still unlikely. 
A second uh, and, and slightly more plausible explanation, at least in my opinion, uh, and this is in part owing to the possibility that um, tail stiff like a cedar is a euphemism for the male sex or- organ. Some scholars have proposed that behemoth is a, a reference to a mythical, um, enormous godlike ox uh, meant to symbolize something here in the text. In that Ugaritic literature that I descri- that I mentioned a moment ago, there's a um, an enormous divine ox often paired with a creature like Leviathan, um, which in their literature is a seven-headed sea dragon representing chaos. And so it's been proposed that perhaps the behemoth here is that um, a big, enormous godlike ox whose male organ would be fittingly described as being able to be made stiff like a cedar tree, and that it um, symbolizes something like, for example, the fertility of the earth. Um, And this one seems to me a little more plausible, given how much more fitting that description of its tail being made stiff like a cedar, if it's a euphemism for uh, the male organ, that seems to be more plausible. But the reason why I still think it's not likely is because throughout this this discourse with Job, God has been telling Job to behold real creatures that Job is familiar with and that he, uh, and that he encounters. Um, So I think it's unlikely that this is describing more of an abstract concept symbolized by a large mythical creature because Job wouldn't have seen any such creature. So that leads me to what I think is the third and most likely uh, explanation for this creature, a creature that apparently is both familiar to Job and is of such a size that its tail or male sex organ could be compared to a cedar. And that is that Behemoth is some sort of large dinosaur. Now, The behemoth in this chapter is described as an herbivore, and so most young earth creationists connect the the herbivorous nature of this creature with the tail being compared to the size of a cedar, and they conclude that this is some sort of a sauropod, um, like like what we used to call brontosaurus back when I was in a a kid, but which we now refer to as brachiosaur or diplodocus, one one of those kinds of sauropods. One challenge to this view that I think is uh, reasonable is that it seems somewhat strange that such a creature's tail would be highlighted in the text here for Job, but not its neck, because at least in some sauropods, the neck is more um, impressive than its tail. And, uh, you know, plus it's the appendage that has the head at the end of it. So um, I think it's reasonable to say it may very well be some other kind of large herbivorous dinosaurs. And there are other large herbivorous dinosaurs that have large tails besides sauropods, um, including the triceratops and other ceratopsids like it, and the iguanodon and other ornithopods like it. So, yeah, in in the end, I think that of these three options, and I haven't heard others, um, I'm open to hearing others if if listeners write into you and and tell you there are other possible explanations. But I think the one that's most likely, uh, again, given that it's got to be both familiar to Job and of such a size that its tail or male sex organ could be compared to a cedar, the best explanation seems to me that it's some sort of herbivorous uh, dinosaur like a Triceratops or a Guanodon or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was just uh, while while you were talking, I was I was multitasking, listening and looking through at the um, my my go to version. I, I like reading the CJB, mm. and I wanted to see kind of how it put it with what you were talking about. And it has now considered the behemoth whom I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins! What power in his stomach muscles! 
He can make his tail as stiff as a cedar. The muscles in his thighs are like cables. His bones are like bronze pipes. His limbs like iron bars. He ranks first among God's works. Only his maker can approach him with his sword. The mountains produce food for him there, where all the wild animals play. He lies down under the thorny lotus bushes and is hidden by the reeds in the swamp. The lotus bushes cover him with their shade and the willows by the stream surround him. If the river overflows, it doesn't worry him. He is confident even in the yarden rushes by his mouth, if the yarden rushes by his mouth. Can anyone catch him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a hook? Huh. Yeah. And and that and it's 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 aquatic nature, or at least it's semi-aquatic nature, might lend some support to the notion that it's a sauropod. I don't know enough about dinosaurs to know if things like uh, ceratopsids and ornithopods spent some of their time in the water. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it, most of that description sounds like it could fit something like a, a hippopotamus or a, or a um, or a uh, whatever else I said it was. I've already forgotten. But but the the tail part of it is what um, yeah. stands out to me. Right, yeah, because because a hippopotamus would not like have a, a cedar-like tail. Yeah, you know. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh. good stuff. Hmm. Anything else on this topic, Michelle? That you're? I, I mean, I'm, it's something that I haven't researched before, mm -hmm. so uh, I'm I'm definitely. coming I'm coming at it definitely with um, novice eyes. Right. <laughs> I mean, so definitely food for more. thought, and yeah, mm -hmm. I think there's something that we'll we'll revisit another time. Because honestly, yeah, I I was asking questions because I didn't have you know an agenda. I wasn't playing gotcha. This was an honest, you know, inquiry. <laughs> so, yeah, I I personally don't have a. Yeah. I will never solidify any of my beliefs, even my most strongly held beliefs. I only believe to like 95% because if somebody can prove me wrong, I'll change. Mm. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, with, with the exception of, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, there yeah. are there are some tenets of the faith that. Yeah, the tenets of the faith were. <laughs> right. Yeah, 100%. As far as the, you know. Secondary issues. Secondary open-handed issues. I'm, I'm I'm always willing to have a conversation <laughs> and have a civil one. Sure. Yeah, and and just for listeners' sake, I'll just point out that although um, I am a young Earth creationist for um, for largely biblical reasons, or at least in part for biblical reasons, and I don't mean the um, use of yom, for example, to mean day in the Book of Genesis. I'm thinking more along the lines of the. Um, the uh, genealogies listed in Genesis 5 and, and 11, I think it is, uh, and also Paul seeming to say that death entered into the world as the result of Adam's sin. Um, the the other reason why I'm a young creationist is because I think it um, is scientifically supportable, and I think that there are scientific uh, problems with um, 
old earth creationism, but but in particular uh, theistic evolution. And so I would just encourage listeners to um, keep an open mind when it comes to the scientific issue as well. Uh, you know, sometimes we young earth creationists are compared to um, flat earthers, but the reality is that with, when it comes to the shape of the earth, um, we have observational evidence. Uh, we don't have anything like that when it comes to um, uh, origins. And, you know, it, I think it's really difficult to square an ancient universe with, for example, um, uh, soft tissue still being found in fossilized dinosaur bones. You know, soft tissue isn't going to last uh, millions of years. Right. Um, you know, I, I think I think an ancient uh, uh, an ancient Earth millions of years old, where the sediments have been laid down over millions and millions of years, are, are difficult to square with certain phenomena that we see in the geologic column. For example, folded layers of sediment, uh, multiple layers folded on top of one another without having broken, suggesting they were folded when they were still soft, which means they couldn't have been laid down over millions of successive years and hardened before they were folded. Or take, for example, fossilized trees that span multiple layers of the geologic column, you know, if, if those if those layers of sediment were laid down over millions of years, only, at most, only the uh, portion of the tree that would was covered up in that layer of sediment would have fossilized, and the rest of it would have rotted away. But the fact that it um, we find them uh, spanning multiple layers of, of sediment and be fossilized suggests that they were laid down uh, when with those layers of sediment when they were still soft. So uh, now I, none of these are knocked down, sort of drag out, uh, silver bullet type proofs against an ancient universe or or, um, or evolution. And I, I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong on this topic. But um, yeah, I, I think it would be unfair to treat young earth, young earth creationists like me as if we're simply sticking our head in the sand and blindly holding to one particular interpretation of scripture. It is indeed one particular interpretation of scripture, but it's one that we think is also supportable uh, and supported uh, by the natural evidence. So just something to keep in mind. Okay. Now, I mean, I know that I've got places where I could go to, you know, if I wanted to read up on different topics that you've written on. Is there, have you written anything on this topic that either myself or any of our listeners can go to to read? No, I haven't. Um, and it's probably not something that I'll have the opportunity to spend any time in until possibly sometime after my education is finished. I'm approaching the end of a master's degree and after that hope to do a PhD. But my focus, uh, and it will and it will be in the Old Testament, which means that some of these kinds of issues will come up. But the um, the topic that I want to explore has to do with uh, human nature and death uh, and the afterlife. And so I probably won't get to write about this topic until at some point after that, maybe 10 years from now or something like that. Okay. Well, um, I know that you, you um, one of the things that I've always admired about you is that you, you are a very um, accessible person. I am. If, if in any of our research um, or as Dino and I are studying this, or if any of our listeners decide to go ahead and study it, can we reach out to you if we have questions? Yeah, certainly. I'm, I'm um, easily accessible on Facebook. Uh, people can find my profile at uh, facebook.com slash chrisdate, C-H-R-I-S-D-A-T-E. Um, if you send me a message with a friend request so I, so I know you're not just some spammer or something like that, I'll accept it and we can chat as long as we're, you know, you, you can tell me I'm nuts, but be kind about it and we can have a good discussion. <laughs> um, 
but or if you prefer something where you can write a little bit more, uh, you can email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com. Uh, and speaking of Rethinking Hell, by the way, I do just want to uh, plug our conference, our sixth annual conference, which is coming up in just a week and a half in Oklahoma. Um, if listeners hear this and find themselves anywhere near Enid, Oklahoma, or even anywhere near Oklahoma City, um, do go to rethinkinghellconference.com and uh, register. We'd love to see you there. Uh, and there's also a live streaming option. So if people that are listening aren't anywhere near Enid, Oklahoma, can't make it out to attend in person, there's a very uh, inexpensive um, live streaming registration option as well. Again, that's rethinkinghellconference.com. But anyway, if people want to reach out to me to talk about this topic, Chris Date at rethinkinghell.com is uh, a good place to reach me. Cool, cool. And I think we will mention again at this point, too, that the views that you have espoused here are your views, even though they're reaching you at Rethinking Hell, this is not a Rethinking Hell position. That's right. Right. <laughs> That's right. I don't. I don't yet have a, a website called Rethinking Evolution or anything, or anything like that, so people can't contact me there. Well, well I know you had mentioned you had mentioned it and, and kind of stressed that point earlier, so I wanted to make sure that that was right. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Reiterated again. So, right. okay, uh, great. Uh, oh, and thank you for letting us know about the live streaming option for the conference. I didn't yeah. know that. We're going to have to take it because we're on the East Coast and yeah, mm. we're not getting out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, it's only, it's, it's only, uh, it's only $4. It's not expensive at all. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll yeah. Cause we were, what was it? In Texas two years ago? Uh, we were in Texas for our fifth annual conference last year. We were in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah. We were, we were toying with the idea of going. And we just couldn't get it to work out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, mo- mostly it's because we have nobody that can watch the kids for any extended length of time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so can, can the kids come? <laughs> sure. You just got to pay for them. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, once again, I appreciate this. This is uh, great, and I think that we've showed that science and faith can go hand in hand mm-hmm. that it's not a mutually exclusive mutually exclusive thing that, that it's not a odd combination as you you know and mm-hmm. um that being said i did put a question out on facebook and twitter about um odd combinations uh, specifically odd food combinations because everyone's got some weird food peculiarities that they that they do. For instance, I like to add hazelnut coffee creamer, like a shot, to my diet soda. Hmm. It just I don't know, it gives it a little kick. I remember. So he well, adds sugar to his non-sugar soda. Well, I <laughs> they're sugar-free ones. <laughs> we don't buy them. No, you could, <laughs> but. I remember, you know, what was it, Laverne and Shirley, where she would drink uh, milk and Pepsi. Yeah. And I guess this is reminiscent of that. But the hazelnut just kind of gives it a kick. And I know Coke has all these different flavors now of their, chi- of their diet. Mm-hmm. I think they should come out with a hazelnut right into flavor, them. you know. But, um, Chris, do you have any odd 
bird combinations or anything that you have anything peculiar that you Honestly, no. I'm pretty. Uh, I'm pretty boring when it comes to food. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, the the strangest thing I have, uh, uh, and it's not even strange. I thought it was strange the first time I did it. My my wife and I have fallen in love with um, the Melting Pot, which is a fondue restaurant. It's just oh, absolutely wow. amazing. And the first the first time we went, I I don't even know if I'd ever heard of fondue, but I certainly hadn't heard that people take. Um, apples and bread and dip them in melted cheese. And I thought that was a bizarre combination, but boy, that is a, that is a pretty phenomenal combination. Yes. Dino, Dino's old roommate from before he got married is a manager of a melting pot. Yeah. I miss being able to go melting pot and get good deals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he used to hook us up. Thank you, Ian. Uh, <laughs> but, and uh, Michelle, you have an, uh, well, I we, think it's we, more thought it was. we thought it was odd, but I'm hearing more and more people actually do it is taking Wendy's French fries and dipping them into the chocolate Frosties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I tried that for the first time a few days ago at at the behest of my, uh, one of my kids. I wasn't all that terribly impressed, I gotta say. Yeah, well, I think what, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You've got to make sure that the French fries are fresh and crispy. If they're the soggy fries, they won't work. And that's why you can't do it with like McDonald's French fries. (laughs) And their chocolate shakes. Um, but the french fry has to be crisp, hot, salted the right way. Right. You need and, that salt and sweet balance. Right. And then and then the and then the chocolate shake, you have to do it before the shake starts to melt. Right. Mm. Like get a... Right. And it's that and like you said, it's that salty sweet. I guess it's the same thing as like when they do like um chocolate covered pretzels. Right. Or even like Aunt Annie's has where you can get the pretzels and you get like chocolate sauce <coughs> inside. I guess it's that same kind of right. combination. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so uh, on Twitter, we've got a few answers. Um, Terran Podnito podcast says barbecue sauce and apple cider vinegar makes a great dressing. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to know what the ratio is. If it's too much apple cider vinegar, yeah. first of all, it's that vinegar taste, and then it's going to make the barbecue sauce too right. I mean, I know sometimes, like, I'll add a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar in with a large uh, glass of ice water, and there's supposed to be some health benefits. I know it It really helps with heartburn, hmm. Yeah. Being 45, you know, you get that. <laughs> I'm not there yet. No, I am. <laughs> you aren't. <laughs> um, I've still got a few more months. The Arguing With Myself podcast. Um, well, here, here, here it is. Uh, back in the day, he ate uh, Wendy's. He would do the fries and the frosty. Um, now his daughter, who's five, loves McDonald's. And she will dip her fries in her strawberry yogurt. You can't do that. You're allergic to strawberries. Yeah. I just don't know how that would work, though. Yeah. Well, um, our youngest, the other day we went through Burger King. Uh And we got her, I got her the... um, French toast? French toast sticks. And she dipped them in her chocolate milk. Mm. (laughs) 
No, no. But maybe that's partially my fault because I never let them have the little boxes of the syrup because I don't want the syrup all over the car. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Um, Oh, he also said that for him now, he once had a peanut butter and mayo sandwich. Uh, No, I don't think. I don't think so. He started off as a dare and it became a question of, should I make another? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. <laughs> no. The uh, uh, Pina Comics uh, podcast, good friends of ours, uh, podcasting friends, said mayo on hot dogs. No. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, it's. I guess the optics, because mayo on bologna is. Yeah, but you don't heat your bologna. That is true. That's a big, yeah, that's a big difference. See, but I, I've noticed for myself, though, because I made a bologna sandwich the other day, uh-huh. and I used to love mayo, uh-huh. and I used to like putting, like, a lot of mayo on there, and I'm noticing I want less and less mayo. The only time I want, like, a big amount of mayo on anything is a public sub. Oh, yeah. Other than that, I'm really starting to, the mayo things for me is kind of... right. Yes, my taste buds are changing. Yeah, for those who don't know, Publix is a uh, supermarket in the uh, southeast. Yeah. I know. Florida, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina. North Carolina. North. Yeah, North Carolina. Yeah, I think they're out of Lakeland? Lakeland, Florida. Yeah, Lakeland, Florida. Um, The ghost of the stratosphere. They say chocolate cake goes best with lemonade. Not, not, not in my house. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sweet tea, maybe. Yeah. But, but we're from the South, so. Right. Um, Sweet tea goes with everything. Izzy. Um, Izzy Fisher-Kondrick. She says she puts uh, buffalo sauce on a Whopper. Okay. All right. Um, uh, Where Does It podcast says, I like A1 sauce on bread. I guess just, I I guess. And then cheddar cheese is pretty good with apple pie. I've heard that somewhere before, but I don't think I could try that. Yeah. I think it's like an old Dinah Americana thing. It's like, Apple pie heated with cheese and like a scoop of vanilla ice cream or something like that. And have you heard of that, Chris? Well, have I heard of what? The cheddar cheese on apple pie. No, I've never heard of that. Yeah. So. Although, like I said, I was surprised to discover how good apples dipped in cheese can be. So, uh, yeah, maybe um, yeah. maybe cheese on apple pie is good. Yeah. Um, Robin from. Um, the Drunk in the Graveyard podcast, another friend of the show. Uh, she said, I drink pickle juice quite often. Just straight from the jar. <laughs> it was so bad one time, I drank most of the juice, and my pickles got all nasty because there was no pickle juice for them to soak up. Well, see, now I don't know if I... The only pickles I like are like the sweet gherkins. Right. 
And I don't think I could drink a like a jar of the juice, mm-hmm. but I will say when I eat the sweet gherkins, mm-hmm. I do actually like to right. get the juice out of them right. before I eat the pickles. Right. So I, I can't say that that's totally right. uh. and I, And I like the, the half sour. Yeah, those like are the too. New York, you know, the ones but that kind of taste like a cucumber, but slightly, you know, you get them in like a Jewish deli or something. Though. But no, I don't think I can drink that juice either. You guys are both wrong. They're the pickles are of the devil, all of them. <laughs> well, I got so angry. I went through McDonald's like last week, and I told them we are big on no pickles and no mustard on our cheeseburgers. No pickles, no mustard. I get my burgers. There is literally no ketchup. There is mustard, Ooh. and there's about six pickles. Ugh. Apparently, my no pickles and no mustard turned into extra pickles with mustard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one thing that I had a hard time with when I moved down south, was mustard on a hamburger. You didn't do it up in New York. Now, that's exactly the opposite of pickles. Mustard is heaven sent, and yellow mustard anyway, and you should definitely put it on every uh, burger and hot dog you eat. Well, it is in the Bible, and it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> it is symbolic of the, you know, kingdom of God. Well, the, girl, so. the girls were watching this video earlier today where these, it was these two guys, they were doing like challenges, and they would each get like a dome in front of them, and they took turns. And they each had to decide, are they going to keep their dome or are they going to trade domes with the person next to them? And then they had to reveal what was underneath it and whatever it was, they had to eat a sample of it. And then they had to take a sample of it and put it in their blender. Mm. (laughs) They each had a blender. Mm. And there was one poor guy, he kept getting stuck with like, I think he got like cat food, onions, wasabi. And one of the things he got was yellow mustard, and he took the yellow mustard, and he just, like, he opened his mouth, and he just squirted it for, like, 15, <laughs> 20 seconds. Uh, just nice. squirted the yellow. Oh, I'm like, oh, no. Thank Sounds you. good. <laughs> Speaking of wasabi, remember uh, years ago, Cold, Cold Stone Creamery? Mm-hmm. They had their wasabi ice cream. Oh, I tried to um, taste of that. I was like, Satan pooped in your mouth or something. It was nasty. <laughs> I didn't need that. <laughs> I'm sorry. There was no, there's nothing. I'm going to have to stick Tom Ellis into that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyhow. Um, the Black Girls Do Stuff Too podcast. This is interesting. Another McDonald's-based one. Uh, when she used to go to McDonald's, she would only order a filet of fish with extra tartar sauce and put ketchup and sweet and sour sauce on it. Then she would press it down and it would all drip out and then she would dip her fries in it. Well, I don't mm. eat fish, but... Yeah. So I don't necessarily eat tartar sauce because you usually don't put tartar sauce on anything other than right. fish. Right. So I think that whole thing would just have to be out for me. Yeah. And then uh, governmentally ill... Uh, responded to that and said, when I eat McDonald's, I put vinegar on my chicken McNuggets and fries. It cuts the grease and a bit of the vinegar flavor. Okay. 
Well, see, I like malt. I like malt vin- like if we go to Captain D's or Long John Silver's or something. Yeah. Malt vinegar on the French fries. Right. And then America's Scaryland podcast. Oh, American Scaryland. I'm sorry. Um, the dillweed on frozen pizza. I'll be honest with you. I've never had dillweed. I don't <laughs> think. I mean, it's one of those spices you put in your cabinet. Like cumin. Five spies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you, Chris, have you ever listened to Michael, what's his last name? McIntyre? Mac, yeah, Michael McIntyre. He's an English comedian. It doesn't, it doesn't ring a bell. Uh, look him up on Facebook. His videos are hilarious. He's got one we listened to like two weeks ago, all about spices and how like salt and pepper they are the spice, you know. They are like the top in the spice world, where they stay on the table all the time. And mm. it, this whole act was him talking as the other spices in the cabinet, and how long they've been there, and they've never been touched. And and one of them says, "I fell out once, and then they put me back in backwards." Mm. <laughs> that was the extent of him being out of it. It was funny. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and then uh, just quick, a few more. Uh, Facebook, uh, Aaron Sturdivant from Horror with Sir Sturdy, good friend. I've been on the show. We're going to be recording another episode soon talking about uh, the Hatchet series. Um, he likes to warm up his ice cream before he eats it. I guess mixing it and making it softer or, or else it's just kind of milk. Yeah. Right. yeah, you know, I, I could see that. I, I enjoy, after I finish um, a bowl of ice cream, I enjoy the melted ice cream that's remaining in the bowl, you know? Right. Yeah. Kind of like cereal milk. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Didn't, didn't they make that, like, one time where you could actually buy milk that was like... I think it was, wasn't that like Shark Tank or something? What, cereal milk? Yeah, where, I mean, it supposedly had, like, cereal... It, it tasted... Like your cereal milk would taste. Right. So, yeah. Uh, Wendell uh, Dubs from the I Heart Geek podcast. Another friend of the show. Um, Rose and Coke Slurpee, but he adds some whiskey to it. So he, <laughs> he kicks it up a notch. Um, and my buddy Keith. Uh, this guy here, I've known him 42 years, I think. Yeah, we grew up together. Our moms were best friends. He's got a podcast called Say It. He does Kool-Aid and milk. Well, yeah, and he calls that the ghetto milkshake. Um, and I think that's all I can Somebody, so well. I thought I read on one of them, somebody asked whether it was weird that they... Um, with the ma- something about mashed potatoes. Oh, uh, P, uh, PJ Ames. Uh, I know I said this about a couple of people, but once again, big supporter of the show. Um, always given, always an encourager. Yeah, he he said basically, I don't put anything on my baked potato. Is that an odd thing? I often don't put anything on my baked potatoes. Okay. I used to when I when back when I was uh, very overweight and I was going through Weight Watchers. 
instead of butter or sour cream, I would put salsa on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, say I, in my conversation with PJ, you know, I asked him. I said, you know, he likes the <laughs> ma- he likes mashed potatoes with or the baked potatoes with nothing on it. And I asked him if it was weird that I actually like to eat raw potato. Like if I if I've got a potato and I'm cutting it up to boil it and then and then make mashed potato out of it, I will take one or two of the cut up pieces before they're cooked and I, I like the raw potato. I, I I do that as well sometimes. I also like um, uh, taking bites out of onions sometimes when they're yeah. raw. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially the sweet sweet Vidalias. Mm-hmm. And those those onions are good. Yeah, I mean I wouldn't. Myself wouldn't bite into it like an apple, but if I'm, you know, eating it or, you know, cutting it up or going to saute it, I would eat it beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple more, and then we'll get going. Uh, Sarah Brescia Campbell. Uh, went to school with her way back in the day. She's speaking for her husband. Uh, he loves peanut butter sauce on mint chocolate chip ice cream. What on mint chocolate chip ice cream? Peanut butter sauce. Oh, peanut. <laughs> What's peanut butter sauce? I guess I guess it's kind of like a thinner. I don't know something like a magic shell or something. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't think that would be too bad. Yeah. I think I can see that working. Yeah. Yes, I do too. I mean, we'll we'll try some of these. Um, Rayanne, uh, she has a. Uh, a podcast. Uh, she's also on the Far Side of Network. Uh, she has a uh, YouTube channel, uh, Ray Animator. Uh, she does movie reviews. She does uh, spicy pork rinds and guacamole. Yeah, hmm. pork rinds, but I can see that working. Yeah, yeah, me too. Because I don't eat guacamole either. So. Right. <laughs> see, I do. I, I like pork rinds. I like guacamole. I'm starting to like guacamole. It depends on where we go and who makes it. But. Right. And then uh, a friend of both of ours, Chris, uh, Nick Quint, he commented and said, pretzels and milk. Now, I don't know if he means dunking pretzels and milk or just pretzels and washing it down with milk, which, okay, I don't think. It doesn't doesn't sound all that strange to me. I, I don't like pretzels, but that combination doesn't sound particularly weird to me. Yeah. See, I for it's probably the salt and milk thing yeah. more, more than the actual pretzel because I will say I like like one of my go tos at night after everybody's gone to bed and I don't have to share it uh-huh. is I'll make like a I'll pop a bag of popcorn I'll salt it mm-hmm. really well and a nice big glass of cold milk. Okay. So it, it's like the salt and the. The refreshing, the salt and the milk combo. I, I, but again, once the milk starts getting warm, it, it loses whatever that is that I like. Yeah, mm-hmm. it has to be nice cold milk. Yeah, milk loses a lot of whatever it is when I get to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, but even but yeah. sli- even slightly, yeah, slightly warm. I don't know. Maybe that's when my grandma used to put ice cubes in her milk. And she already only drank two percent, and she would already she would mm-hmm. still put ice cubes in there. Yeah. Huh. Well, you know, um, and it's not ice cubes and milk, but I forgot where it was. Was it Zombie Donuts in Colombia? 
was a Chick-fil-A. I think it might have been. Wait, yeah, we've we... got two great donut shops here. One is called Zombie Donuts, and another one is called Chicken Butt mm. Donuts. And Chicken Butt Donuts are really good. They they have like, you know, bacon maple donuts. Uh, yeah, they, basically, you go there, you get you, you order your donut. Usually on any given on any given day, they'll have like two flavors. It might be like a vanilla cake and a red velvet cake. So you tell them which donut base you want. Mm. Okay, and then and then you get a a drizzle or they dip it. You get the you get, you get the dip the, first. You get to pick your dip from a, a variety of flavors and then toppings. And then top it with a, a drizzle. Well, no, the to- the topping would be like. Um, okay, so say you get the cake donut, you can put the chocolate glaze on it. Yeah, it's the glaze. That's what it is, the chocolate glaze. Then you can get to pick from a variety of toppings, which will be stuff like Fruity Pebbles, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, M&M's. Bacon. Bacon. Just a variety of different things. And you can pick one or more. And then you pick a drizzle, which right. could be like a chocolate or a caramel, and they put that on top of whatever your topping is. Mm. Right. So. so basically, it's a it's a good sugar rush. Yeah. <laughs> but they make everything because uh, I mean it's so specific. They make everything to order, so when the donuts come out to you, they're actually still warm. Yeah. Nice. I mean, they're, oh, they're, they're, uh, and, and they're pretty decently priced. So oh, yeah. if you're in the Columbia area of South Carolina, good chicken butt donuts. Yeah, I mean, and Zombie <laughs> Donuts does the same thing. Yeah. Zombie Zombie Donuts is actually started in Louisiana. I right. Think. Uh, yeah, there's like three or four of them. But my, my point was, <laughs> I digress, but you're welcome for the advertisement. Uh, <laughs> um. They do their iced coffee, because I love iced coffee. Their ice cubes, they make their ice cubes out of coffee. Weird. So that way, the when the ice cubes melt, they, they don't dilute your coffee. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, that's really, that's a cool thing. Yeah. But I think... Uh, the kids like it because it's called chicken butt. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they, they they wouldn't care if the donuts weren't good. It's called chicken butt. I mean, right. how not. Yeah, but they, I mean, they advertise it. So I don't know how they came up with this concept or whatever. But their sign is basically a chicken walking around with a donut around its butt, <laughs> like like the tail of the the tail of the chicken is yeah going through the hole of the donut. Yeah, and they're on our way home from church. church. So. <laughs> so on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Oh, one morning we went in the church, and the church actually had boxes and boxes of chicken butt donuts. Yeah, we were like, woo-hoo! Nice. <laughs> yeah, we're having family day, and there was chicken butt donuts. <laughs> so, woo! All right, uh, I think we're wrapping this. I think so. All right. Cool. Well, Chris, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I know that we mentioned it, but uh, do you just want to say again where people can find you? Yeah, facebook.com slash chrisdate. I'm happy to converse via messenger there. Or email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com. All right. Fantastic, Chris. Thank you very much, my friend. Thank you. We will talk at you.